The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. They say, never split the party. It's a rookie mistake. But in episode 65, that is exactly what happens. Gyrios and Harl essentially sit out the episode, while Umura and Eredin go off on an adventure together, using teamwork to retrieve a ruby that might well be a candidate for augmenting Harl's armor. Without it, they won't stand a chance against a red dragon. Even with it, if we're being honest, their chances are not great. Umura and Eredin's plan has a few moving parts. Here's how they pull off the heist. First, Umura remembered that Wyvern's kiss, her grandfather's magical rod, was topped with a golden head that held a huge ruby. Hyrun and Uxon's body, along with the rod, would be in the family mausoleum, but getting inside would not be a problem. The doors were magically sealed against anyone who was not of their bloodline, but Umura knew that they would open for her. The first real problem was that her mother's spies, her homunculi, were likely to be present. Her mother would know someone was there right away and would come to investigate. There's no way she could grab Wyvern's kiss and get away in time. Eredin's breadbag story provided the answer to this problem. Using the potion of invisibility she'd been carrying around since the goblin caves, Eredin would accompany Umora and do the work of replacing the ruby with a duplicate. One of Harl's flawed rubies taken from Grithwip's workshop would do nicely. While Eredin made the switch, Umora would provide a distraction, posing as an intruder and drawing her mother farther into the mausoleum space. Brissian and Uxon would be sure to try to trap the intruder inside by closing the doors, and Eredin could sneak out with the prize behind her back and covered by the noise. As for Umura, a special dress indicating her betrothal to the sage Gwilgodan would allow her to bilk a sizable treasure from her parents before leaving. Umura rather enjoyed that her parents, who had essentially given her away as a present, were instead funding her future independence. Chapter 66, Part 1, Day 90, Morning. Party status, Harl, 34 of 34 hit points. Gyrios, 37 of 37. Eridine, 20 of 20. Umura, 25 of 25. Spells available. Umura has memorized, hold portal, charm person, levitate, knock lightning bolt, and water breathing. Gyrios has prayed for, cure light wounds times two, resist fire, 
speak with animals, striking, and create water. That is bad news indeed. Satcharose was one of the last great city-states, and its folk were a proud people, said Chief Desmail. But there is good news as well, Harl replied, flashing his companions a conspiratorial grin. Eridine, why don't you show her? The young rogue held up the ruby she had liberated from Wyvern's kiss. Chief Desmail's eyes widened. May I? She asked, holding forth her open hand. Eridine nodded and put the gem in the dwarf's rough palm. For the love of gold, she muttered. It is flawless. Yes, yes, I think that this will work. Let us begin without delay. Haro, come here. Now stand still. <clears throat> oh, wouldn't you prefer me to remove the armor first? Are you afraid of something, Chief Stonecarver? Well, it seems an unnecessary risk is all. Harl trailed off. Believe me, the risk is all mine. You are in no danger. According to my own homebrew artificer class rules, the procedure to bond the magical properties of the ruby to the armor is a dangerous one. Chief Desmail is, of course, aware of the risks, but this kind of danger is something she has lived with her whole life. Moreover, there has never been a greater need or reason to take such a risk. Laura Wayne knows that if she does not succeed, Harl's mission will have failed before it has begun. The chance of failure is determined by multiplying the level of the spell to be applied by 5%. The protection from fire spell she will cast is a level 4 spell, so the number to beat on a deep percentile is 20. Now, because Tale of the Manticore is a game as much as it is a novel, I am going to roll to see if the Chief Des is successful, and I am going to live with the result. If she fails, the gem will explode. That won't be good. We all know what happened to Grithweb. In a sense, this is the most important roll I've made to date. Here we go, rolling percentile dice. 55. Thank Runemog. That was one roll I could not afford to miss. I honestly don't know what I would have done if it had failed. The binding process is a success, and when she is finished, the ruby that was once bound to Wyvern's kiss is now bound to Harl's armor. The spell she has bonded to the armor is special to the Artificer class. It provides total immunity to normal fire and heat damage, and gives a plus two to saves versus magical fire or dragon's breath. Furthermore, any magical fire damage sustained is reduced by 80%. Did it... did it work? It seems to have worked. I can feel something. The armor is... different somehow. I believe it did, yes. But there's really only one way to know for sure. Come with me, Haro. We'll go to my workshop and start up the forge. Chief Desmail winked at Eridine, while Harl blanched. Are you sure that's a good idea? You'd rather find out when you're face to face with Numenax? Come. With that, Chief Desmail walked off to her workplace with Harl, stammering protests, following in her wake. Part 2 Day 90. Afternoon. Party status. The party status is unchanged. A small select group of dwarves was in attendance to see the expedition party off. Chief Smail was there with Seneschal Grumblebelly at her side. Draylid Argantin was there as well, ready to give the deity's blessing. 
several of the survivors of the Ankeg tunnels stood together in a group. Garrett Manger, Captain Slinghitch, now wearing a leather eye patch, Hidari the crossbow archer, Debin Helmbreaker, and Tam Willgrinder, standing silently at attention. They were assembled at the entrance to Thangar's interior. Outside, they could see, the sun shone upon the sea of ruin that had once been a part of their home. Frivius Brindle was adjusting some straps on a pack laying on the ground. When he finished, he looked up and declared, All set. When the chieftess bowed to the party, her diamond cluster pendant hung straight down like a plumb line. Six heroes stand before me. You are the hope of Thangar. May you meet death head on, and may you return as dragon slayers. Debon Helmbreaker, I understand that you have written a warrior's poem. By your leave, chieftess, replied the Greybeard, bowing. Then recite your words. Thank you, chieftess. The senior warrior stood forward and faced the companion squarely. He unfurled a scroll and spoke his verse. Hafidolo minram aimon, yo nakafar thaun ta sedon, gala dundun aki ananala, lufaro dolayanir brana, lukum shezar boaskund, lakum she kojo boakas, lukum she haptun kalamirioth, waramir ananala, tag. Garrett Magger did not look like the kind of dwarf who would enjoy poetry but his eyes were wet by the final word. He sniffed and wiped his nose with the bandage of his stump arm. I wish I were going with you. I wish. He looked at his half an arm. Ah, who cares what I wish? You go and hunt down that monster, you hear me? You kill it dead and make your ancestors proud. The companions nodded one by one to the old warrior. On my word. We shall not return until it is done, said Harl simply. Very well. It is time, but before you leave, please accept these small gifts. May they bring you aid on this most perilous of quests. Although many of Thangar's treasures have been lost, there are still a few that remain, and, knowing how critical the success of their mission is to the survival of her people, Chief Desmail wishes the companions to have them. They will receive two magic items, both of them potions. The first will be a simple potion of healing, which Daz will carry. The second I'm going to determine at random. There are eight kinds listed in the basic rules, but the eighth is poison, so if I roll an eight, I'll re-roll. Here we go. I've got a four. That's... hang on. Oh, interesting. A potion of growth. To be honest, I don't really know what this does specifically. I should probably read the entry. Okay, I can see how this might be very useful. The potion makes the drinker grow to twice their size, giving them increased strength and granting them double damage on a successful hit. Hit points do not increase. I think it makes the most sense for Gyrios to carry this. Gyrios and Daz each accepted a vial from the chiefess and thanked her for her generosity. We promise to do our best, said the cleric. I know you will, replied Lorowain with tired eyes. I pray it will be enough. There is one last boon we would like to give you. Speaker Argenton? Draylin blessed them all, even Gyrios, 
dabbing their palms with sacred oil, and each of them felt holy power flow through them. Chief Desmail then bowed one last time and said, Now go, and fail us not. What happens when you take five newbies to D&D and put them in an actual player podcast? Chaos, that's what. Do Dragon's Dream Scorch Sheep tells a tale of a group of adventurers fighting against impossible odds in a situation they don't quite understand, using tools they really shouldn't be allowed to use unsupervised? Join us as they battle monsters, despots, criminals, and their own dice, while they forge a path through the world of Erethria. We have drama, we have comedy, we have characters throwing bears, we even sing a song or two. Do Dragon's Dream of Scorch Sheep is available everywhere you can find podcasts. For the third time, the party will be covering the ground between Thangar and the Cloudspur, as they have already traveled to the Eye in the Fire and back. I feel that a third hex crawl over this same terrain would not make for a very interesting gaming experience for me as a player, or for you as a listener, and so I've decided to allow the party to fast travel to their destination. I'll say that, having crossed this part of Merith twice, they know where the potential danger is likely to be, and are careful to only travel those areas in full daylight. Helping with this, Gyrios is in daily contact with his network of birds, recasting his spell of Speak with Animals each morning. These allies keep them informed of, and away from, most possible threats. At night, the PCs allow themselves no light at all and keep their own counsel, knowing that even small noises can attract unwanted attention. This will be my ruling until they reach the ruined supply depot at the end of day 95. They make good time, partly because Gyrios's new spell of create water has allowed them to travel much lighter than usual. Frivious Brindle's skill using maps, supplemented by the PC's experience, also contribute to their speed by keeping them to the most expeditious path. Frivious's job is now done. He will part ways with the companions and head back to Thangar in the morning. Part 3. Day 96. Early morning. Party status. The party's status is unchanged, with the exception of Gyrios, who has used the spells Speak with Animals and Create Water. Thank you, my friend. Gyrios nodded to the black-capped chickadee perched on his index finger. Their conversation complete, the little bird flitted away and swooped into the sky. The cleric turned to his still-sleeping companions. They were all settled on the ground inside the relative protection and concealment of the ruined supply depot. Harl was finally lying still after what must have been a bad night. The whole time Gyrios had been at prayer, all through dawn and the sunrise, the dwarf had moaned in his sleep, tossing and turning in his bedroll and wearing a stricken expression. A sheen of sweat still clung to his now peaceful brow. Gyrios might not have been alarmed, except that this was something he had witnessed every day of the journey. When the others awoke, he shared his concern, as he had on each previous day. That's five days in a row now said Umura, looking concerned. She hadn't forgotten her own nightmare, though she had certainly tried to. It might have been going on even back in the mushroom farm, Gyrios continued. The cleric had a point. They hadn't bothered to set a watch for the nights they'd spent there. Perhaps we should let him sleep a little longer. Nah, let him walk it off. Daz was awake and had wandered over to join the conversation. He bent down and shook Harl roughly awake. Oh, what? Frivius Brindle was packing his things a short distance away. Over his shoulder, he agreed with Daz. 
they would need to get a good start if they wanted to make the most of the daylight. There was still more than 20 miles to cover, much of it over difficult terrain. Travel safely for Vias, said Umura as the apprentice checked his gear one last time. Good luck. Gruen Mug be with you. The young dwarf bowed deeply, then he trekked off, back in the direction from which they had come. Oh, said Harl, rubbing his eyes. I feel like I didn't sleep very well. Was I? Gyrios nodded. Once again, I remember nothing. Nothing at all. Perhaps I should be grateful for that. Harl helped himself to some dried rations and a few sips from the water supply that Gyrios had replenished, once again, by magic. Oh, that's better, he said. Well, is everyone ready to go? If we leave now and the weather holds, we'll reach the Bran Amirioth in three days. I'd feel better if we were traveling with an army, said Umura, looking at the imposing tower of the Cloudspur in the distance. An army would avail us nothing. At least this way we can hope to reach the mountain without being seen. The PCs can hope to reach the mountain without being seen, but there's no guarantee. I'm going to roll one time for a random encounter for each of the remaining three days it will take them to reach the place where the Fire River exits the mountain and where the companions plan to access the lowest levels of the Egogen. They might have made it in two days, but Harl and Aerodine are still unwilling to cross the Bridge of the Wind, so they'll have to take the long way around. I'll be using a new table for these random encounter checks, which I'll post on the blog shortly. I'm adding a chance on that table for the dragon to spot them. It's a small chance, but it's there. I'm bringing back my full hex crawling system for these three days. I'll be making rolls for weather, stumble upon, and random encounters. For day 96, weather. An eight. Today it feels as though the summer is beginning to fade. The sky is overcast and a little cool. Stumble upon. 14. No result there. Wandering encounter. A 6 on a d6 indicates there is one. A 2. The first day passes without incident. For day 97. Weather. A 9. There isn't much change in the weather on this second last day of travel. Stumble upon. An 8. Nothing special occurs or is found. Wandering encounter. Ah oh hell, it's a 6. Okay, I'm rolling on my new table. Rolling a d12. I've got a 6. What's that? Oh, alright. I'm no Satori Ranger, but there really isn't any doubt, said Harl. He was pointing into the soft western bank of the Fire River, a dozen miles north of where they had crossed before on the way to the Eye. Look, that's the toe. Now he pointed about twenty inches behind the faint impression. And this curve here is the hill. I would wager anything on it. If that's the case, Umora reasoned. Given the direction it took, there should be more footprints on the other side of the bank, directly across from this one. I believe it would be wise to find out for sure, said Gyrios. I'm hopeful that this is a coincidence, though. The birds didn't mention anything about a giant. Then it's decided, Harl replied. We cross as soon as we can find a good spot, and then search for more tracks. He looked at the sun's position in the sky. It was already well on its way west. Sunset would come in four or five hours. We should hurry. It took longer than they expected to find a part of the river where it was shallow enough to cross, but there was no need to double back when they got to the other side. As soon as they crested the eastern bank, they gave a collective gasp. Although hidden from view on the western side, from here they could not miss the patches of scorched landscape. 
burned sections of terrain marred the earth like ink spots on a map. They dotted the range all the way back to the eye in the fire. In one of these sections, Eridine's keen eye caught something out of place. A bit of white. Daz saw it too. What's that? He wondered aloud. Without waiting for an answer, he headed off to investigate. The rest followed behind, readying weapons as they went. When they arrived, they discovered a pile of massive bones. It was impossible to say what kind of beast they had belonged to, but whatever it was, it had been twice the size of a horse. Horns that curled like ram's horns, and teeth each two inches long, troubled the imagination, but provided no answers. Worse, there were clear tracks here, matching the ones from earlier. Humanoid footprints measuring 20 inches from heel to toe. It's a giant, all right. One, I think. Maybe two. Daz fitted a coral to his crossbow and scanned the distance. Skill in tracking was not required to see that the footprints led directly toward the cloud spur. The dragon draws creatures of evil toward it like a lodestone, declared Harl. We need to be ready. They crossed several more burnt sections of rocky ground as they walked, more cautiously now, towards the towering spire. At this distance, the cloudspur absolutely dominated the vista with its ghostly immensity. Its sheer size, they knew, made it seem closer than it really was. It also made the companions feel small. Alone, it would have done so. Compounded with the presence of giant footprints, the party members found themselves feeling like ants crawling across the remains of a long-dead campfire. They followed the giant tracks all day until the dimming light of evening turned them invisible. When darkness made further progress dangerous, they stopped. The river had curled back around and was now close by, so they dropped their bedrolls on the eastern bank and set watches. First Harl, then Umura, followed by Eridine, Daz, and Girios. My wandering encounter check indicated an abandoned campsite, two days old. When I thought about what kinds of things might be so recently in this area and would be the kind of creature to have a campsite, well, I came up a bit empty. So I took the next most logical thing and decided that a giant had passed by this place on its way to the cloud spur. Along the way, it encountered the burned corpse of something awful. Who knows what that thing was? It seems to have angered the dragon though. Before we return to the story, let's make rolls for the party's last day of travel as the party follows the river uphill and then right into the side of the colossal mountain. For day 98, weather. A 16, summer has returned. The blue sky and cotton white clouds are picture perfect. Beauty that mocks the five companions as they move closer to their probable doom. Stumble upon. A four, no result. Wandering encounter. A three. By mid-afternoon on day 98, exhausted by hours of hard travel climbing up the steep mountain's base, they arrive at the spot Grumblebelly had indicated on the map, a huge opening in the rock. It's a triangular cave mouth no less than 50 feet tall and almost as wide. The river spills out from one side of that cave mouth like a tongue. Within, an array of gigantic stalactites and stalagmites receding into shadow. Be ready for anything, cautioned Harl, moving to the front. Giants aren't very smart, but they can be cunning. Daz stepped right beside him, and the pair entered the huge cave with Girios, Umura, and Eridine in tow. The interior space was immense. One massive stalagmite rose from the cave floor some 30 feet away and to the right, dwarfing the others. To the left, the river joined a motionless pool. 
It must have been fed from below the surface because the river did not continue on the other side. Beyond both of these features was a ruined structure of dwarven design built upon a natural ledge. The building had collapsed, only two of the walls were still standing. Moving diagonally from the cave floor to the ledge top some 60 feet off the ground, a stairway had been cut into the stone itself. Something big moved in the shadows atop the ledge behind the broken walls, but the few seconds that they had been inside the cave was not enough time for their eyes to have adjusted to the low light. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and want to support the show, there are now four ways to help. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, available for the price of a cup of coffee on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to everyone who has supported the show in any of these ways. I'd like to read a review from iTunes today. This one was posted by... Well, I'm just going to call him BKK Brian. Brian writes, Listening to this podcast feels just like sitting at a gaming table with friends back in 1982. The story is compelling. The characters are fleshed out just enough to care about them, but not so much that it slows down the story. The narrator has a pleasant voice and the sound effects are just right and not annoying. This is a must-listen to any fan of old-school fantasy gaming. Ah, Brian, I think you've cast a charm person on me, and is the old-school overpowered version too. I don't think I get to roll another save for, like, a month. Seriously, though, I love that you're getting the nostalgic vibes out of the show. 1982 is only a couple of years before I discovered the game, so you are right on the money. Many thanks for your review. My thanks also to this episode's voice actors. Back on the show, playing Chiefess Laura Wayne Smale is Allie from Syracuse, New York's Fed Ash. Also returning to the show is Hodag RPG, giving voice to Garrett Magger, one of the few survivors of the battle with the Ankegs. Last but not least, in the role of Roland Daz Augerstone, now going by the short form Daz, is Jared Grimm. Find him on Twitter at CrazyDrunkenElf. I'm on Twitter too. If you care to get in touch, find me at Tale, Or if you prefer Instagram, I'm at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I also keep a blog at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com, where I post show notes, art, character sheets, and other miscellaneous. The show will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Hi, my name is Ruin Ortega, one of the hosts of Cantrips and Coffee. We love tabletop games. We love them so much that we can't stop talking about them or playing them. The trouble is that there's so many to choose from. Now, we could stop and just play the big one, you know, the one that everybody plays, but life is meant for more than just one game for the rest of our lives, isn't it? That's why we're determined to play the best ones. We wanna know which are worth our money and which we should probably just skip. Am I close enough to any of the other survivors to reach someone's, like, leg? Yes. Can I crush that person's leg? Yes! Okay, let's... Carl is suddenly looking for a new mentor to be sidekicked to. <laughs> this isn't surprising. When you first did it, I was like, yeah, we got this. Like, we've just been too timid. We have been too scared to touch anything. Like, he's gonna go through, it's gonna be good. Oh, he's dead. <laughs> Join us for brand new episodes weekly on Cantrips and Coffee.